0: And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What?
1: There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe is right about America being the land
0: of opportunity, and maybe it yields a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals! You can't always do. Uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know. Uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Carmel. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um, if I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, with twelve years men are seduced by communists and women so much so that they deem communism. ice communists murdered mostly the nazis bottom-up horizontal connection sharing at all levels is key
1: describing this anarchy are you an anarchist
0: you mean am i a member an
1: anarchist group yes
0: anarchists have a group i believe so sure what kind of garbage is that oops my anarchy
1: symbol Welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, here live in the studio, WCAALP in Albany, New York. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left-wing perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and or a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meaning point of a socialism, anarchism, and ecology probably wave the flags of the three laughs. Another description for this show program is an audio magazine of magazines, like a 2 Reader, which is a magazine that takes various progressive articles from various progressive magazines and puts them all into one magazine, right? It's like a hodgepodge. And I basically seek to do that, but instead of just progressive or Buddhist articles, articles about veganism, uh, which you know I've done in the past. Uh, it's all left wing, uh, all just kind of poking around strategy, tactics, uh, various arguments and debates that occur offline and on regarding left. Now I'm, you may have noticed, I'm alone today. My co-host isn't with me right now. He just got a new job, but it includes a shift on Saturday, so can't be here. So we're gonna work out something. I may not be live in the studio in the future, I may move entirely to doing a live show on Twitch, then I take the audio from that, and then I put it, and then you'll hear that audio here if you're listening to this via the radio or the WCAL live stream, which can be found at grandarts.org, in case you want to know. Knowledge is power. So what is today's show going to be about? No, Nothing long today, Okay. I usually pepper in some long article that takes half an hour to read. Um, that's fine. It's definitely a good change of pace. I like to be a middle ground between the pippy, let's watch a five-minute video and take an hour to react to it, uh, and the I'm going to read a whole book uh, one section at a time, which, of course, can be pretty good depending on your listening situation. I like to make a program that maybe you can flip on and off or you can listen to altogether. I don't get too much input back, but what I get, people like what I do. I want to cover, like, this is part five of what I call left-wing culture war, where basically it's like, okay, there are arguments that happen all the time, rather than me reacting, Andy, to the week-by-week and the various arguments, you know, uh, you know, stop the, not to stop the steal, the, you know, force the vote versus this and that, and I rather i'd rather collect uh, all the thoughts together and try to have some kind of nuanced discussion at least in this case it's one way but yeah it won't be if it's on twitch and you look at my channel three left show and then those' a there's a chat feed and all this other cool stuff that makes twitch kind of what it is as a kind of the evolution from YouTube so let's start with something fun from box because it's not quite ideological in their end but anyway I can have all kinds of opinions on Vox themselves, but the article is about a uh, reference to a project slash, you know, movement by right libertarians called the Free State Project. It started just after Occupy or, or 2010. and And the idea is this, that enough of us radical folks, like-minded folks, travel one area, we will be the majority, and we'll be able to do whatever we want, we'll be able to... Actually, you know, we will be free from the sheeple. We'll be free from these societal constraints because that's, you know, one of the individualist ideology is it's all these other people in the way. You know, truly what's what's in the way of changing the world is everybody else. Actually, it's everybody else that allows for change to happen. But we'll see how the folly of that in this story uh, that's quite humorous. So it's how a New Hampshire libertarian utopia was foiled by bears. Seriously, this happened. You should read about it. This is filed by Sean Eiling. Now, another uh, anecdote about the Free State Project was the, there's a little town in New Hampshire called Keene. It has a college in it. It's a college town. And a bunch of right libertarians or regular libertarians, you know, Ron Paul types, they Ron Paul fans, and they, they all moved to Keene, or a lot of them, like a few hundred, and they just started doing stuff like um, messing with the police or messing with law enforcement, like where they would... Uh, what one of them did was like he would have a stack of quarters and he would basically fill everybody's parking meter so no one would ever get a parking ticket. And this irked the city and apparently the local population as well. Uh, who does this guy I think he is? And there were some other things. Maybe they tried uh, running for council or something. It just didn't work because there was this backlash. There was this Obviously the, the locals knew what the, this group was trying to do and it becomes an invasion, and they're not following the nap then because they're acting aggressively towards a pre-existing population, indigenous people, if you will. Hmm, funny. I've, there are still other people that get in the way. Now, this is to contrast more of a leftist position, or at least uh, the thinking experienced by uh, Richard Wolf when he, he goes to talks, and he talks of anti-capitalism. And this is for the last decade. And he realizes that, or that the people in the audience, there'll be hundreds of people who didn't know that they existed. And and they feel less alone, like, oh, yeah, this is not just, I'm just not crazy for being anti-capitalist. There's all these other people. And it's actually, we don't need to all congregate in one place. We just need to find each other where we already are. In fact, all the people you need to build your community are already there. You just need to connect with them. Now, that's work. It takes effort. It isn't just online tools can make it easier and facilitate a little bit of it, but it's not a silver bullet. So let's talk about how bears foiled these right libertarians in their Ayn Rand fanaticism. Every ideology produces its own brand of fanatics, but there's something special about libertarians. I don't mean that as an insult either. I love them. For the most part, they're fun and interesting people, and they also tend to be cocksure about core principles in a way most people aren't. You know, it's always like there's um, respect for those who actually have convictions and actually believe in something. You gotta, you gotta respect that, uh, at least to, to some extent. If you've ever encountered a freshly minted Ayn Rand enthusiast, you know what I mean. And yet, one of the things that makes political philosophy so amusing, you know, because it's it's a little more depressing, act you know, interacting with people who are apathetic all the time. You know, oh, it's hopeless. There's no, you know, why I believe in anything? You know, uh, a passive nihilism. There's an active nihilism where you actually do seek. And build meaning. It's actually freeing. I digress. One of the things that makes political philosophy so amusing is that it's mostly abstract. You can't really prove anything. Well, point of Marxism is that you use science or data to actually kind of make conclusions about things. So you can prove. You know, that's why we call like socialist states or projects, we call them experiments. We're experimenting. And then we can assess the results as empirically as we can. You know, what was the result? How many people did we help? How long did, the, how long did the effects last? But this guy, Vox writer, comes at it as a, you know, light and centrist, you can't really know anything, what's the point of having ideology, it's all just silly. But he sees it as a never-ending argument about values. Every now and again, though, really, reality intervenes in a way that illustrates the absurdity of particular ideas. Something like this happened in the mid-2000s in a small New Hampshire town called Grafton. Matthew Hornets henting author of the new book titled The Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, says it's the boldest social experiment in modern American history. I don't know if that's the boldest, but certainly a strange one. The experiment was called the Free Town Project, which later then grew into a free state project, referring to all these libertarians moved to New Hampshire. The goal was simple, take over Grafton's local government and turn it into a libertarian utopia. The movement was cooked up by a small group of ragtab libertarian activists who saw in Grafton a unique opportunity to realize their dreams of a perfectly logical and perfectly market based community. Needless to say, Utopia never arrived, but the Bears did. I reached out to the writer, Honglertz uh, Hetting, uh, to talk about his book. I wanted to know what happened in New Hampshire, why the experiment failed, and what the whole saga can teach us, not just about libertarianism but the dangers of loving theory more than reality. So there's an interview for him. Uh, the writer, Sean, asks, how would you describe the Freetown Project to someone who doesn't know anything about it? I put it like this, says Matt. There's a national community of libertarians who have developed over the last 50 years, and they've never really had a place to call their own. They've never been in charge of a nation, a state, or even a city, and they've always really wanted to create a community that would showcase what would happen if they implemented their principles broadly. So in 04, a group of them, so this is pre-Great uh, Recession, actually, so correct, self-correcting, a group of them decided that they wanted to take some action on this deficiency and decided to launch what they call the Freetown Project. They sent out a call to a bunch of loosely affiliated national libertarians and told them to move to this one spot and found a community. That would serve as a shining jewel for the world to see that libertarian philosophies work, not only in theory, (laughs) because, you know, everything can work if you think hard enough, uh, but also in practice. They chose a town in rural New Hampshire called Grafton that already had fewer than a thousand people in it. And they just showed up and started working to take over town government and get rid of every rule and regulation and tax expense they could. So of all the towns in the world, why Grafton, asked John, Matt answers, they didn't choose it in a vacuum. They actually conducted a very careful and thorough search. They zeroed in on the state of New Hampshire fairly quickly because it's the live-free-or-die state. They knew that it would align well with their philosophy of individualism and personal responsibility. But once they decided on New Hampshire, they actually visited dozens of small towns, looking for that perfect mix of factors that would enable them to take over. What they needed was a town that was small enough that they could come up and elbow the existing citizenry some place where land was cheap and where they could come in and buy up a bunch of land and kind of host their incoming colonists. It's like internal colonization of America. And they wanted a place that had no zoning because they wanted to be able to live in non traditional housing situations and not have to go through the of building, buying expensive existing homes. Wait, what do you mean by non traditional housing? So, as the people of Grafton soon found out, a non traditional housing situation mean, meant a camp in the woods, or a bunch of shipping containers or whatever. They brought in yurts and mobile homes and formed little clusters of cabins and tents. There was one location called Tent City, where a bunch of people just lived in tents from day to day. They all united under this broad umbrella principle of personal freedom. But as you'd expect, there was a lot of variation in how they exercised it. Now, this is not too dissimilar to what a lot of leftists do, especially since leftists in America are very individualistic. Now, this is something that doesn't really separate us from these right libertarians. That's why bottom unity always feels closer, and I'll be discussing that in other pieces after this one. Sean asks, What did the demographics of this group look like? Are we talking mostly about white guys, and Rand bros who found each other on the Internet? Matt answers, Well, we're talking about hundreds of people, but the numbers aren't all that clear. They definitely skewed male. They generally skewed white. Some of them had a lot of money, which gave them the freedom to be able to pick up roots and move to a small town in New Hampshire. A lot of them had very little money enough in keeping them in their place. So they were able to pick up and come. And most of them just didn't have those family situations or those nine-to-five jobs, and that was really what characterized them more than anything else. The freedom to move. To not have any roots. Kind of reminds you of... Um, the back to the land movement, which a lot of some new leftists did, you know, when uh, losing to political battles in the cities, uh, thinking, let's just run for the hills and build lives how we see it, since really, like, their primary goal and motivation was living their lifestyle the way they saw it. Some wrap some ideology in where it's like, okay, out here on the farm, we'll build a base to do more radical action, because that's something we couldn't do in the city. Some organizations like Move did this and then they were bombed by the feds. <laughs> so yeah. Go to the land where there's less heat on you. Less uh police intimidation and harassment uh or harassment from just hostile actors. So how long did it take them to take over local government? Did they meet much resistance? When they first showed up they hadn't told anyone what they that they were doing this with the exception of a group of sympathetic libertarians that were there and so all of a sudden the people of Grafton woke up to the fact that their town was in the process of being invaded by a bunch of idealistic libertarians they were pissed they had a big town meeting it was all very shouty very angry like town meetings usually are during which they told the freetowners who dared to come that they didn't want them there and they didn't appreciate being treated as if they- their community, was an experimental playpen for them to come in and try to prove something. So they weren't following the non-aggression principle, to be sure. But the libertarians, even though they could never outnumber the existing residents, what they found was that they could come in and they could find like-minded people, traditional conservatives or just very liberty-oriented people, who agreed with them on enough issues that despite the uh, angry opposition, they were able to start to work their will on the levers of government couldn't pass some initiatives they wanted. They tried unsuccessfully to withdraw from the school district and to completely discontinue paying for road repair or to declare Grafton a United Nations free zone, some of the more outlandish things like that. But they did find a lot of existing Grafton residents that would be happy to cut down services to the bone. And so they successfully put a stranglehold on things like police service, road service, fire, and even the public library. All of these things were cut down to the bone skeleton Cruise. then what happened in the next few years matt explains by pretty much any measure you can look at to gauge a town's success grafton got worse cycling rates went down neighbor complaints went up the town's legal costs went up because they were constantly defending themselves from lawsuits from free towners the number of sex offenders living in the town went up although i've covered this before like sometimes you're just put on like there's this case where I met somebody who was put on a sex offender list because his server was used to transfer CP. He wasn't aware of it, but he was caught in the net and put on the sex offender list. And I cover I covered the actual stats. Like only 20% of those on the sex offender list actually committed what I would we'd would call like a misdemeanor crime of actually abusing someone or committing you know horrible acts. The number of recorded crimes went up. The town had never had a murder in living memory, and it had its first two, a double homicide, over a roommate dispute. You know, because they don't believe in courts. Or they believe in private courts. A private court will settle such disputes. Surprised they didn't set one up, right? So there was all sorts of negative consequences that started to crop up. And meanwhile, the town that would ordinarily want to address these things, say with a robust police force, instead found that it was hamstrung. So the town only had one full-time police officer, one single police chief, and he had to stand up at town meeting and tell people that he couldn't put his cruiser on the road for a period of weeks because he didn't have the money to repair it to make it a safe vehicle. Basically, Grafton became a Wild West frontier type town. Although I that's also kind of a mischaracterization because Wild West towns, yeah, they were farther away from main central beats of power, but there still were authorities there. And, you know, there, there were forts and you could call in the military if things got really bad. There was just a little bit more leeway. So when did the bears show up? So it turns out that if you have a bunch of people living in the woods in non-traditional living situations, and they're not, I guess, expert campers, each of which is managing food in their own way, and their waste streams in their own way, then you're essentially teaching the bears in the region that every human habitation is like a puzzle that has to be solved in order to unlock its caloric payload. And so the bears in the area started to take notice of the fact that there were calories available One thing that the Freetowners did that encouraged the bears was unintentional. In that, they just threw their waste out how they wanted. They didn't want the government to tell them how to manage their potential bear attractants. The other way was intentional, in that some people just started feeding bears just for the joy and pleasure of watching them eat. As you can imagine, things got messy, and there were no way for the town to deal with it. Some people were shooting the bears. Oh yeah, they just used gun self-defense, you know. Some people were feeding the bears. Some people were setting booby traps on their properties in an effort to deter the bears through pain. Others were throwing firecrackers. Others were putting cayenne pepper on their garbage so that the bears sniff the garbage they would get a snout from a pepper. An absolute mess. John asks, so we're talking about black bears specifically for the non-bear experts. blacks, Black bears are not known to be aggressive towards humans, but the bears in Grafton were different. Matt answers... Bears are very smart problem-solving animals. They can really think their way through problems, and that was what made them aggressive in Grafton. In this case, a reasonable bear would understand that there was food to be had, but it was going to be rewarded for being bolder. So they started aggressively raiding food and became less likely to run away when a human showed up. There are lots of great examples in the book of bears acting bold, unusually aggressive manners, but it culminated in 2012 when there was a black bear attack in the town of Grafton. That might not seem as unusual, But in fact, New Hampshire had not had such an attack for at least 100 years before. So the whole state had never seen a single bear attack. And now here in Grafton, a woman was attacked in her home by a black bear. And then a few years after that, a second woman was attacked. Not in Grafton, but in a neighboring town. And since the book was written and published, there's actually been a third bear attack. Also in the same little cluster, in the same little region of New Hampshire. And I think it's very clear that unless something changes, more bear attacks will come. Luckily no one's been killed, but bad injuries follow. Tushan so puts, you're fair, even sympathetic to the libertarians you profile in this book, but I do wonder if they came to see this them increasingly as fanatic. Well, you know, libertarian is such a weird umbrella term for a very diverse group of people. Some libertarians are built around the idea of white supremacy and racism. That was not the case with these. Most of the libertarians that I met were kind, decent people that would be generous with a neighbor in any given moment. But in the abstract, when they're at a town meeting, they will vote to hurt that neighbor by cutting off, say, support for road plowing. So I guess what I notice is a strange disconnect between their personalities or their day-to-day interactions and broader implications of their philosophy and their political movement. Not sure I'd use the word fanatic, but definitely a disconnect. John asks, there's a lesson in this for anyone interested in seeing it, which is that if you try to make the world fit neatly into an ideological box, You'll have to distort or ignore reality to do it, usually with bad consequences. Matt answers, yeah, I think that's true for libertarianism and really all philosophies of life. It's very easy to fall into this trap of believing that if only everybody followed this or that principle, then society would become this perfect system. Some big brain, enlightened centrist takes here. Did any of the characters in the story come to doubt their libertarianism as a result? Or was it mostly a belief that libertarianism can't fail? That can only be failed by people. One of the central characters in the book is a firefighter named John Barrett, and John had the distinction of running for the governor of New Hampshire on the libertarian platform, and did better than any other such candidate has done in America, being a libertarian running for governor. And he invited the libertarians to come in and begin the free town project. He was their local connection. But by the end of the project, the end of it, uh, somewhere around 2016, hmm, what else happened that year? He had really drawn some distinctions between himself and many of the extremist libertarians who came to town. He still considers himself to be one and a very devout one, the word devout, you know, religious connotations. But by the end of the project, he was at odds with most of the others, and it shows that until you actually have a libertarian-run community, it's very hard to say what it is or what it will look like. Talked, um, I talked about an ANCAP community that, like, they moved to Mexico, and they also, basically someone was murdered, and they basically all like shrugged and like, oh, well, I guess you should have been more careful. Yep, 600 uh, still dying coronavirus, and it's still a, like, oh, you got to do what's best for your own health. If, if there's a risk from the vaccination, don't take it. Idiots. Okay. In the end, do you think these people bumped up against the limits of libertarianism, or is this more about particular follies, a particular group, in a particular place? Hmm. So can we generalize from this, or should we just kind of, like, look at the situation? Matthew's last answer. I think they bumped up against the follies of their of libertarianism. I really do think that there is a hard wall of reality that exists that's going to foil any attempt to implement libertarianism on a broad scale. And I think if you gave a libertarian the magic wand and allowed them to transform the society they would want, they, the way they wanted to, it wouldn't work the way they imagined. And I think it would break down just as Grafton did. Maybe that's the lesson. Maybe. Now, to kind of build up, uh, not just talk as an outsider, but someone who at least watches these conversations, here's a post in the, by the way, so I'm somewhat active, I'm a lurker, really, on the caucus page of the, it's a Libertarian Socialist Caucus, so these are lefties who have joined the Libertarian Party, because the Libertarian is there, basically bottom-up leftists aren't really interested in state power or using it and stuff like that. And uh, and then some of them are former greens, so that's kind of my connection. Uh, and I also encountered them when I took part in a black block. And and they're they're a good educational project and they um kind of starting to have some sway in the party. They're definitely like making a lot of friends in a bottom unity milieu. So here is A post. It's basically a conversation between a member of the caucus and someone asking on the page is called the Libertarian Candidates Meme Army. Because really, it's all really is memes representation. Well there are libertarian candidates here and there. And he asks, What is the libertarian stance? So like libertarian trademark stance on libertarian socialism. Now of course the party allows this caucus to exist, right? put them out and hasn't made rules against them uh, doing what they do, mostly ed- educate and agitate. So he kind of asks a broad question there. So here's, a, am guessing, a member of the left's Libertarian Caucus, or it is someone who has been affected by their um, activism. <laughs> his, his, his tag name is Mobile Joe. I'm going to assume that's fake. But he answers, there are some valid LibSoC, That's libertarian socialist schools of thought. Some cultures have different property norms than folk in Western culture. that's in scare quotes. As the right libs like to put it, something like land property that you and I view as something that can be owned inherently cannot be in many cultures. Same goes for sharing of their tools and labor. This is something I covered extensively last week. I feel like it would be violating the NAP, the non-aggression principle, if one were to step in and told these communities that they are wrong simply on the grounds that we don't agree with a handful of their markets, especially if that community is living peacefully and according to they're not acting aggressively as well. What happens when the aggressive actor bears? Um, it's when communities start pooling and distributing resources by force that I personally have a problem. And here, here's where it's like, well, what's the definition of force here? You know, community agreement governance because if everyone's in a community and consents to be governed is it still force and this is this is the thing with the right libertarians is like we don't consent to being governed right and this is the case with many anarchists most anarchists we don't consent to be governed so what's the alternative because even if you're in a tribal community type of like situation There's still got to be some government there, right? So it's about going back to the land, going to a rural area of a thousand people and trying to have some kind of tribe. Uh, A government that you do consent to being in. You know, a government that governs least. But then a hostile force comes in like bears. (laughs) It doesn't even have to be human. It doesn't have to be the state. It could be bears. And it's like, what do we do? How do we handle this? They have no answer. It's like, oh, do, do what you can on your own. You're on your own. This is why I'm not solely a left libertarian. I sympathize and will sometimes identify as such. Depends on the situation. But here's where I'm kind of starting with, like, you know, starting on the attack here. But left libertarianism is real. That when communities, oh, yeah, the movement was founded on it. We are all allies of liberty at the end of the day, and it's time we start acting like it. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Hashtag bottom unity. I think there was more. Oh, yeah. And he presents a follow-up lens on this topic after giving my personal opinion this morning. This is later in the day. Lots of libertarians tell me that just because I hold a personal belief that the earth cannot be owned by a human, like a small percent of my Native American heritage believed, I am actually a Marxist commie and not, thus, a libertarian. This is the argument within the party. You know, they, these left libertarians—they're not real libertarians because they actually believe in sharing property, or that they actually believe land can't actually be owned because of the justifications that we went through. Right? The uh, the last article I read last week was the left libertarian stance on property—that the person who owns property or has the right to it is the one who works for it, the one who needs it, um, or it was need uses and paid for it with their labor. According to a lot of our peers here, this belief is true, but it should be called literally something else besides socialism, or else it will inevitably lead to violence. It's like what you call it, at least. According to a lot of peers here, this belief is true, but it should be called something besides socialism, or else it will inevitably lead to violence committed by the state somehow. So he's being skeptical of that. Meaning, um, yeah. I identify as a lot of things. I am a moderate minarchy mutualist, and I am a capitalist. I am democratic, capital D, in the classic sense that I believe every voice should get a vote when it comes to community law. I am registered as a libertarian in New York after voting for Johnson twice and Dr. JoJo in November. I am also a libertarian socialist. All of these things still fit the big umbrella that is liberty, a.k.a. human freedom. The sooner you folk, you folk referring to right libertarians, or the party broadly, understand that property does not equate to human freedom, the sooner we will truly start to grow as a libertarian movement. Why? Because while everyone doesn't, the masses don't own property or aspire to own property, maybe we want to own our own home, but that's usually just as a means of that it's ours and we actually have control and autonomy over it. You know, that's, It's not the ownership that matters, it's the autonomy that matters. So if you get autonomy... You know, owning an apartment or being a member of a a co-op or a commune, all the better. So that's just a general, like, uh, kind of left libertarian take inside of uh, arguing, like, this is why we, we, we deserve to have that libertarian adjective. Next, two articles from the Center for a Stateless Society. I forget if I read one last week. They are the mutualist kind of middle libertarian centrist you know but they live they're left libertarians stateless society a left market anarchist think tank and media center so they call themselves left market anarchists i also haven't probably properly explained maybe i have time and something bears repeating why do i just focus on these really small left-wing ideologies well as has probably been harped on by other left tubers and public voices, there really isn't a the left in America. There's no organized left. It's really just a bunch of individual leftists. But if there is to be a the left, an organized left, a left that actually can actually wield political power, or even have freaking autonomy themselves, that isn't just Abstractly resisting authority like punk culture. So I focus on the leftists that are actually in orgs, groups, clubs, whatever. And so the people with these ideologies, these tendencies, this thinking and their practice, what are they doing, what kind of activism do they do, this is what I focus on. Because there's all these other leftists that are just hopping from candidate to candidate, tactic to tactic. Uh, they're fans of AOC this year, next year will be someone else, you know. or they're just listening to Jimmy Dore and like, what does Jimmy Dore think? That's their politics. No organization, just uh, celebrity worship or something like that. It's like that's no, not dealing with that, not messing with it, not taking it seriously, not trying to get off of that. So I'm just going to talk about orgs, and this is an org. Libertarian Party is an org. The Green Party is an org. Marxist orgs, are, you know, Marxist groups are an org. Commie clubs that are forming. They're 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 the real left, no matter how marginal they are, because even though you have Dementrius, they're not an organized left. They're the left wing of the Democratic Party. They're in that org. And as far as you know, I can argue, and I'll do another show hammering this home. Democratic Party is not a left wing. It's not for egalitarian values. It's a It's the oligarchy. All right, you join the oligarchy. You're organized in the oligarchy. You're not organized as a leftist. So there's a, that. There was that clear distinction to me. So that's my justification. I'd like to argue about it. Not an argument that happens. Um, not for. If it does, it's it becomes dogmatic and like you know, yeah, uh, the hell with uh, any of these entries. They're not real leftists. Blah blah blah. I kind of think that way but i'll 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 walk it back if you know it's, it's real people in front of me, of course, I'm not just gonna you know spit in people's face so here is two pieces. one is kind of negative about left unity boosts you know for bottom unity, or at least makes it a it argues for a certain distinction of strategy for coalition building, or if anything, actually it kind of says coalition building isn't really what's important, so I don't agree with this commentary per se and it's filed by a guy who's just uh, under the moniker spooky Twitter name is spooked hams not steamed hams and then but another uh, article from Center for stateless Society is kind of about the mutualist platform and how these uh, these market anarchists actually see themselves because they you know see themselves as the true communists. Um, they're doing leftism right, or at least their way of thinking about it is better. They make the case for that. And mutualism, which is kind of wrap up mutualism arc some extent. since mutualism is really just a platform, it's not really the a strategy or anything. It's really just like a vision that helps that helps you like think about policy and how to tackle the issues of like how do we outgrow capitalism, how do we do these things? Build that more equitable society. So, yeah, I have room for one more here, and I'll do the uh, second one after the break. So, it's called "Vulgar Ant- Anarcho Communism," what Left Unity conceals, um, and I think he's referring to himself as being that vocal anarcho communist, because otherwise, like, see, Left Unity is that the anarchists, left libertarians, should be working with in coalitions with. Leftists uh, in the Green Party, leftists and socialist orgs, um, those that are more about, like, you know. If you work on any project, political or otherwise, you're going to be collaborating with folks you don't agree with. Duh. Marxists, democratic socialists, like DSA, <laughs> AOC, the left-leaning liberals might have your back on a picket line or protest, and in some cases, you might be joined by libertarians, conservatives, and even single-issue Republicans on issues like self-defense and gun control. Hell, even with in-anarchist spaces, you're going to have disagreement between your various adjective havers. Are they individualists? Are they communists? Are they like a token left libertarian? (laughs) That might result in the occasional huge debate. No matter what, people will never agree on everything across the board due to differences. So this this is an intro to the essay. So far, this probably sounds like a typical left unity narrative. And as it stands, it's a fairly convincing line of reasoning. Many mainstream social justice issues are predominantly supported by liberals, but we still stand solidary solidarity with Black Lives Matter, indigenous liberation projects, and many other campaigns despite our strong political disagreements on other subjects, like, say, how to solve homelessness. Sure, I absolutely despise the numerous tanky groups in my school, but when Proud Boys and maga I Pawns invade our campus, I will be there, and I know damn well which side of the fence I'm going to be on. This is a writer's view of tactical unity, a tactical union, spontaneous association founded on opposition to a given issue, like fascists coming to town. But that ceases to exist when the immediate threat goes away. This union, going back to the previous example, when the crowd dispersed, I immediately resumed smack talking the pseudo-Bolshevik hacks I stood next to, and they probably went home to spew some of their own bunk at unsuspecting freshmen. In participating in a single action with an individual group, I'm not obligated to validate their beliefs or hold my tongue till we defeat our common enemy. In most cases, the only unity required to effectively respond to spontaneous threats is the shared opposition to that specific threat. Kind of how leftists currently act. But he points out it doesn't really go beyond that at all because they're all still kind of individualists. Doing their own thing. Dealing with the bears their own way. Well no no I, I no actually no no. Put it back to the metaphor of the bears in the small rural town. They get together when the bears come, but when the bears aren't there, then they yeah, they're all throwing their trash out or or their feces all their own way. Hmm. Or meeting their needs. Strange. Interesting. Ideological unity, on the other hand, is an entirely separate demand from tactical one. Focused not on one direct action or some strategy, but movement building. Uh, advocates of ideological unity in most cases are intent on creating a broad left-wing coalition between all of us opponents of capitalism. This, uh, this coalition usually includes uh, dem soaks, commies, anarchists. Sometimes, however, this is also extended to a tankies which include uh, Leninists, Left Accelerationists, Dangists, how China does things, resulting in the most incredible displays of mental gymnastics the Left has to offer. To most of us, it should be obvious why this is a problem. As a group that includes anti-authoritarians, crypto, and then Crypto-Stalinists on the other, uh, it doesn't really make a strong coalition. In attempting to make such a dissonant connection sustainable small concessions need to be made by the less stubborn side but it's like then it's like well shouldn't everybody just then be malleable enough and then not be try to be you know, all al- alpha each other you know this is where like the the masculine ideology or the toxic masculinity comes in where someone has to be on top like well see I'm proving how much of a man I am or how strong my ideas are based on the fact that I didn't have to give in but then if nobody gives in, Nothing gets accomplished. Hmm. In most cases, this results in anarchists becoming less anti-state to police state leftists. He always sees it as like, yeah, like anarchists bend to statists or, you know, authoritarians. Like I said, I I, I read a good article um, from uh, an Iraqi leftist on like how this distinction between authoritarian and anti-authoritarian is really kind of meaningless because at the end of the day, we're all envisioning a stateless slash equitable democratic society. There's just different like visions of how to go about it and what to do in our current context. And the usual kind of anarchity critique is the same I would just give a punk culture, that you're just resisting authority for the sake of it. You're not really that constructive. You could construct a community or a co-op, as many anarchists and left libertarians do, but you're never going to take power. You could organize maybe even a successful local election campaign, but you're not going to keep your seat. It's not going to build lasting change and dual power. That takes unionism. That takes organization, which requires a little bit of, yeah, I'm not just going to do my own thing. And got to do things with a group. Notable results of this process include anarchist justifications for prisons, models for non-state police and military forces and of course Chomsky's fav- famous justified hierarchies. Meanwhile, tanky sit back and watch so it's weird that he sees these things as like concessions to make left unity. but I don't see that at all. Like I see that as no those are that's Chomsky's position. To say, like, almost also to self-justify his position as a tenured academic. So meanwhile, tankies sit back and watch a self-proclaimed libertarian socialist tread on rhetorical eggshells to avoid losing their coalition. I don't know what he's talking about because these coalitions never last and they never accomplish anything. So he, he's complaining that, like, anarchists lose themselves by trying to please tankies, I'll use his language, but, like, do they get out of it. What do tankies get out of it? They don't gain anything. It's like he's acting like they're getting, like they're they're dominant and they're like winners. They're not winners. They don't win local elections. They don't win anything. More on that in a later um, analysis. So actually, in any and if anything, the critique of them is that their practice is exactly the same as anarchists. We protest. We hand out leaflets. Uh, we try to build membership, like minded people. And and that's uh, but it's just like they just think that they're doing something different. It's what it's in their minds of what they're doing differently. And that's what's being disagreed about, not what they're actually doing. So in my experience, however limited as it may be. So in this case, like in that case, I see tanky, quote unquote tankies as doing things the anarchist way to work in coalitions with them. And then the anarchists complain that they have to change their mental positions based on working with. Tankies. So it's a lose-lose. So in my experience, however limited it may be, I've seen no convincing argument that ideological unity is necessary in the struggle against the current system. Here's where I like this guy kind of loses me quite a bit more. And it's you know, his name's Spooky. It's, it's not a guy I can look up. Like, what does this guy do? What kind of activism? He basically says, yeah, there doesn't have to be any uh, unity of what, any kind. Just resistance. Well, let's let's keep going. Tactical unity, on the other hand, is the unavoidable and necessary component. So, mostly just keep doing tactical stuff uh, like current anti fascist and other insurrectionary activity, transcending the limitations of organized political structures in favor of the decentralized, the spontaneous um, responses to threats uh, from both state and non actors. I don't get how that's building a new society. You're just responding. Literal reactionary. Just going like putting out fires, playing whack-a-mole, oh new threat, threat, threat. But see, but see, that's that's the goal. The goal is just to live your own way and have unity with others to respond to threats. That's the only reason to do anything collectively. That's so weird to me. Don't do anything else collectively. Don't get housing collectively. Don't, and this is why like I like I want to, and, and I probably will be, uh, in the, you know, now and in the future. I, you know, I like being in their cliques or their uh, community. They're definitely more of a community than you know, hard, harder socialists or whatever. Oh, or at least they're the people I've been around more, thanks to food not bombs and other mutual aid stuff, because I actually get some of my needs met that way. Um, it's more interesting that way, and that even like the the socialist party, which are the you know, I would describe them as the Leninists, they they are doing... Their practice is also mutual aid projects. Which is, to me, like, amazing that it's like everyone's kind of doing the same, but they also act like they're doing the opposite. Or rather, they're doing it for opposite reasons. One is doing it so they can do their own thing, act individually, in their clique, in their tribe. And the other is like, no, we're doing this so we can be more collective and take power and actually, like up in the system, make it more equitable. Get gains. Interesting. So let's walk through the argument for left unity one more time, using the concept of tackle unity and an ideological kind, respectively. As abolitionists, we have started. We have shared interest in opposing the current system. Strong disagreements regarding the ends. Uh, aspects that make organization very frustrating. In most cases, however. Responding to immediate systemic threats is a higher priority than reconciling these disagreements, leading to collaboration between a diverse group of individuals against a common danger. This process is not planned. It doesn't have formal membership or rules, and there's no vetting process for who gets to be an anti-fascist for that moment. When danger presents itself, ideology takes a backseat to action, and that's what works, over and over. A certain analysis of Occupy, my comment again, is that that was actually meant to be, you know, that was a movement for constructing something and it had an anarchist character it had a collectivist character and that we're all there for a similar purpose but no one was not no one, but many there were participating as individual actors doing their own thing, acting collectively towards maybe the threat of Wall Street but then when it came to construct something then all of these problems of ideological unity came up so it's like okay we're occupying as a form of tactical unity right but then it was even unclear what we're responding to well we could say over and over no we're responding to corruption oligarchy right citizens United and all that stuff but then how how are we addressing this threat this is where it got beyond just like anarchist or you know activist whatever protest that's like okay now we have to answer the question of we're addressing a common threat so how do we do that now that we've gathered together to address this threat tactically what tactic like we're here for tactical unity now what do we do and there were many answers some of which were like, you know, just more resistance, more resistance. And, and anyone who wanted to kind of, let's say, take power, run for office, it it then split in 100 directions, right? And then there was no cohesiveness because you had a lot of Democrats. They're like, oh, yeah, let's, let's run and make the Democrats more progressive. And then they started doing that for the last decade. And now we've got that senator that, you know, does the thumbs down when she votes against aid for people. Yay. Uh, what was it? Uh, Seneca. Or SEMA. Serviness. Um, Let's skip to the end here. My detractors, assuming they read this fall, are almost definitely going to claim I'm just being a sectarian and narco and Whatever. In the spirit of being the punch, I'll just admit right now that I am being sectarian. Though I do appreciate the attention, it's not my primary motive. The most radical implication of my suggestion here is that total rejection of the means ends framework that defines ideology and embracing a sole pursuit of means, a topic I hope I can explore later, is the big conflict. It's generally not a good idea to not let those gr- disagreements go unsaid. Pretending that total unity exists in a situation where there exist fundamental disagreements is the disaster okay so I'll throw uh, to the next hour I'll see you on the other side of the hour this is the three left show with Dan Platt
0: if you're offended by the song it's probably about you worker's world says that they have all the answers and Milosevic is a guy that they admire the ISO says Trotsky is the man and they'll defeat it until they all expire. The industrial workers will lead the revolution. So says the SWP, No, the truth lies with the lumpen. That's the RCP. The sparks say the rest can go to hell. And everyone else is a Stalinist. The CP will just do their thing and pretend that the others don't exist. Well, I had a realization this morning as I looked into the red and dawning sun. I figured out the truth, and I'm forming a party of one. Cause I am the leader of the workers, and I'll tell you why the left is suspect. Cause there's something you don't understand. Only my line is correct Yeah, I am the vanguard of the masses And all of you should just follow me And if you doubt my analysis You must be in the petty bourgeoisie But I am not sectarian It's all the rest who are I work fine in coalitions as long as I'm the shining star. So bow down to your new master, the latest V.I. Lennon, and off to the camps with all of you who'd say not this again. Because I am the leader of the workers, and I'll tell you why the left is suspect. Because there's something you don't understand. Only my line is correct the vanguard of the masses and all of you should just follow me and if you doubt my analysis you must be in the petty bourgeoisie and I'll have no music at my protests none of that goddamn puppetry I'll just have some somber slogans no decadent frivolity but my chance will be the right ones just the ones that should be said. And my banners will wave proudly, just the proper shade of red. And I will build the party if it kills me. I am solely dedicated to the cause. If I have to stab you in the back, that won't give me pause. But my platform will bring us forward. And the ends always justify the means. So all of you should step aside behind me, be you Quakers, Jews, anarchists, or Greens. Cause I am the leader of the workers. And I'll tell you why the left is suspect. Cause there's something you don't understand. Only my line is correct. Yeah, I am the vanguard of the masses. Of you should just follow me. And if you doubt my analysis, you must be in the
1: Okay, welcome back to the Three Less Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. You know, I was reading the last article before the break. I didn't really seem like I was ag- disagreeing with it, but then I was rethinking what his thesis actually was, which was that uh, don't worry about ideological unity, having to agree with everyone you work with, uh, which is just something of an axiom something like common sense folk wisdom at this point i hear it all the time and it kind of irks me when i hear it mostly because it kind of ignores i don't know having a vision having ideology itself like if you just work tactically it's like drop all ideology but of course you never really do because the things you do tactical unity with are to do, uh, motivated by principles and beliefs, right? And I'm good to think of how, like, so what I disagreed with him was that, like, oh, don't worry about coalitions and organizi- organizing and o- organizations. Just, he meant tactical unity as individuals in groups, which is kind of like, see, like, I do work with anarchists all the time. It's with tactical unity. You know, I might be joining uh, or starting, helping start a pot co-op in New York, and this will be Tactical unity, because the, the people I'll be working with are, are not the same exact ideology as me, but they're all leftists in my book. That's kind of what I'm, I have standards, and they all meet it. As uh, opponents of capitalism, they want to start a co-op. Then there is, you know, any organization, whether it be about housing justice, or this, or that, uh, food justice, whatever. Tactical unity is what is there. You know, And uh, and we can work with each other, do mutual aid through tactical unity. It seems like everything we do is tactical unity. And he's just kind of pointing out that that is the reality. But there really never is and never will be ideological unity in any of these organizations or coalitions. Even within organizations. So like I'm a Green Party guy. And the Green Party is, at the end of the day, tactical union. Of people who are left leaning and run for office or want to run for office, want to support others running for office, and it's really all tactical unity because there is no ideological unity in the Green Party or any party for that matter. Maybe in those things that call themselves parties that are just like a few clicks of people that hand out newspapers and attend protests, you know, Leninist or you know, Workers World. SP kind of counts as one, but they actually did elect somebody uh, in Seattle. About a but now a more positive, I'm like the market anarchists here. What is their kind of, what are they really about, about their vision and goals? And it's a certain perspective when it comes to what socialism is and how to explain it and how to talk about it to people. Um, of course, the different types of socialism, but here there's a vision of a type of socialism or type of leftism that actually is about centering the free market right now. I'm not really a market socialist guy, but as far as tactical unity and living in America, markets are always going to be important to people. And so in arguing for leftism via free markets, so here is an, an essay. It's actually written all the way back in 2012 by Kevin Carson, and it's called Who Owns the Benefit, the Free Market as Full Communism. So, this is the kind of like, we're the real, we're the best leftists because we actually base our vision as a market socialism, or in their case, market anarchism. There's a wonderful phrase for how capitalism works in the real world. I'm not sure who came up with it. He associates it with Noam Chomsky. It's quoting the socialization of risk and cost and the privatization of profit. You know, the public pays for health and pollution costs, and corporations make the money. That's a pretty good description of what the state does under any existing capitalism, as opposed to the free market. Just about everything we identify as problematic about corporate capitalism, from exploited labor, pollution, plant obsolescence, environmental damage, stripping of resources, results from the socialization of cost and risk, with the privatization of profit. We have the cybernetic revolution and the vast increases in productivity from technological progress resulted in 15-hour work weeks. All of the advances of progress haven't resulted in less work. Uh, or, many, or It hasn't led to many necessities of life becoming too cheap to meter. The answer is that economic progress is enclosed as a source of rent and profit. The natural effect of unfeathered market competition is socialism. For a short time, the innovator receives a large profit as a result of being the first to market. Then, as competitors adopt that innovation, competition drives these profits down to zero and the price gravitates toward the new, lower cost of production made possible by this innovation. So, in a free market, the cost savings and labor required to produce any given commodity would quickly be socialized in the form of reduced labor costs to produce it. I'm going to say from the get-go, I don't really agree completely with all this, but I'm reading this from a position of good faith. I'm just I'm giving you this case that actually communism is when you have a free market. It's capitalism is when you don't have a free market because, well, owners, uh, an oligarchy, uh, a minority control, and and are collecting rents. And that's where like I, I like the mutualism angle. It's like it's about if you just abolish renting uh, from our property and markets, then things get a lot more equitable. Now, I'm I'm from a tendency that's more like, well, that that it's not it's a big part of it, but it's not the only thing that's part of it. But it would solve it would it would create a lot of change. Okay, only when the state enforces artificial scarcity, like property rights, artificial ones, not based on use or work. A barrier is to competition, uh, like copyright law. Uh, It is possible for a capitalist to appropriate some part of the cost savings as a permanent rent. capitalist under these conditions is enabled to engage in monopoly pricing. That is, rather than being forced competition to price her goods at the actual cost of production, she can target the price to the consumer's ability to pay. That form of enclosure, via intellectual property, is why Nike can pay a sweatshop owner a few bucks for a pair of sneakers and then mark them up to $200. Most of what you pay for isn't the actual cost of labor, the trademark. The same is true of artificial scarcity of land and capital. David Ricardo and Henry George observed, and these were like um, political scientists of the late Victorian era, there was some rental accruing on the national scarcity of land as a non-reducible good. You know, there's no new land being made. There's considerable disagreement among Georgists, mutualist occupancy and use advocates, and other libertarians as to whether or how to remedy the natural scarcity rents. But artificial, we kind of discussed a little bit of that last week, but artificial scarcity based on the private enclosure and holding out of use of vacant and unimproved land quasi-feudal landlord rights to extract rent from rightful owners, actually cultivating arable land is an enormous source of illegitimate rent, arguably the major land of total land rent. And regardless of any other steps we may advocate, principal libertarians are all in favor of abolishing this type of artificial scarcity, at the very least, letting market competition from vacant land drive down land rent to its natural scarcity value. We favor as well opening up the supply of credit to unfeathered market competition, abolishing entry barriers for the creation of cooperative lending institutions and abolishing legal tender laws of any kind so that market competition will eliminate a major portion of total interest on money. So my own little summary of kind of what mutualism is about is by actually getting the state, like it it comes from the position of reality that capitalism requires state intervention; rather, it is supported, uh, and it's a symbiotic relationship with the state. And there's, and then this is what makes them anarchist slash libertarian: is it's like if we just take the state out of the equation, the markets will be equitable. A Marxist point of view is that no, Marx it's the markets themselves that create the inequality, the unequitable conditions. And that's what kind of captures the government and there's the kind of like what's the horse what's what's the chicken what's the egg? Is it the state that gets co-opted by rich merchants and landowners you know landlords or is it that the landlord can exist because the state will backs up their rights and their ownership of the property say you're you're using the property. And maybe you're even putting labor into it, but it's not yours because the state says so. So it's kind of coming at things that, from one end. While demanding the socialization of rent and profit may be frowned upon by capitalists as class warfare, they're totally okay with socializa- socializing their costs. The main reason modern production is so centralized and both firms and market areas is so large is because shipping goods around the world is so cheap. This makes large-scale, inefficient producers more competitive artificially against the small business owners and local markets that they're able to exist with the state's help. That's why we have giant retail chains driving local retailers out of business using their own internalized warehouses on wheels, wholesale operations to distribute goods manufactured by sweatshops in China. Or the third world. Or second world in this case. The past 40 years' loss of biodiversity, deforestation, CO2 pollution has occurred because the ecosystem as a whole is an unowned dump rather than being a regulated commons. The state typically preempts ownership of forests and minerals, often to the prejudice of indigenous peoples already living there, and then gives these privileges to extractive industries that then are able to strip mine. As surprising as it may seem, there's a strong parallel between free market vision of abundance and the Marxist vision of full communism. So here's where he tries to tie the two together. Karl Menger wrote of economic goods becoming non-economic goods. Economic goods being ones that are valued because of their scarcity. There's only so much of this. That's why, it, that's why it's worth something. But making them become non-economic goods, meaning that they're so abundant uh, and that their production is so cheap that to make the cost of accounting greater than producing them. This parallels a major strain of thinking among socialists in the free culture, open source, peer-to-peer movement. They see the communist mode of production practiced by Linux and other open source developers as the kernel of a new post-capitalist, post-scarcity form. Much as capitalist production started out in tiny islands inside the larger feudal economy, later became the core of a new dominant one, commons-based pure production is the core around which the post-capitalist economy will eventually crystallize. I'm not too confident in that because cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin kind of started as part of this culture, and now it's just some capitalist pyramid scheme. We free marketers are also information communists who want the benefits of knowledge and technique to be fully socialized. The largest single share of profit under the current model of corporate capitalism is embedded in rents, knowledge, copyright law. In a society where waste and planned obsolescence were no longer subsidized and there are no barriers to competition socializing the full benefits of any kind of progress, we could probably enjoy our present quality of life with a 15-hour work week. And in a society where the dominant mode of production was craft-produced with cheap, general-purpose CNC machine tools, as uh, Kropotkin anticipated, the division of labor, and I guess CNC is like, think of a makerspace, the division of labor and the economy between mental and physical labor would be less noticeable. Taken together, these two outcomes of free market competition and socializing progress will result in a society resembling non-international capitalist vision of the world owned by the Koch brothers or Halliburton, so much as Marx's vision of a communist society of abundance in which one may do one thing today and after tomorrow, hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, criticize after dinner, Just as I have the mind about ever becoming a hunter, fisherman, herdsman, critic. So this is like the this is um the market anarchist kind of pamphlet saying, "Look, we actually do have more ideological unity with other leftists." So this is where I kind of see them as left wing, despite kind of just being their name is stateless society, as if like if we just get the state out of the way, like they they kind of talk and act like libertarians, and then sometimes they're kind of hard to distinguish. But then they write stuff like this about how, no, 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 we want to free markets because we feel that without state intervention and subsidy, that uh, corporate oligarchy and capitalism just can't hold. I feel they're ignoring the historical way that capitalism developed. Merchants didn't usually have state support. Well, I suppose mercantilism is state support of colonializing and profit making, but you know it was it was under royal seals, and and uh, you know feudal lords would definitely get the benefits from that, as well as merchants. You know they were kind of the middle class, so yeah, it's it's it's, it's I'm gonna make it muddy. So that's kind of our wrap up. That's like the mutualist framework of uh, the kind of is kind of about, like, you, you kind of, if you, if you picked up, like, the kind of, the policies are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we just want, we feel building socialism is just fighting copyright law and and making, like, and, and doing work in the kind of free information uh, commons of open-source software, open-source manufacturing, open-source everything. And so they're definitely part of the leftist milieu. And they exist with, um, in Europe as the part, pirate parties, you know, copyright slash, um, file sharing parties protecting civil liberties in that way. And then it becomes a civil liberty issue. So, okay, moving on. So that was all supposed to be in the first hour. I feel like I'm going to throw to my bank of strategy tour of articles so I can kind of stay more on topic. Yeah, since I was so since I was ragging on orgs and coalition building, and how like there's this culture war on the left between tankies and anarchists. Um, when really, as say, like Angie speaks and other YouTubers, um, who are a bit more estranged, they don't have a big support base because they they're not really into validating other people. their individual narcissism. It's like validate me, validate me. Tell me that I'm right or tell me, say things that I like and if you stop saying things that I like, um, you're canceled, baby. So I'm going to summarize for the rest of the hour. A series of essays or kind of a mega, it's like a big paper from a place called The Left Wind, Discourses and Marxism. Where is the Winter Palace on the Marxist-Leninist trend in the U.S.? So you kind of had, I think it's fair, a fair and balanced way of handling these things that I've had. I started with liber- right libertarians and moving through left libertarianism. Some of them very much hate tankies and these 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 Leninists, these like you know these uh, these holes. Um, let's start with the intro, which is just kind of. This is a really good paper so it really comes at things like kind of in a um, very level-headed um, not just going to attack anarchists or I'm not just like because usually all these little articles it's just a bunch of arguing for the sake of it. This guy actually really wants to get to the bottom of of, of, of things and he's really he's, for the, he's one of the few honest like mls to kind of examine what have we been doing, how have we been doing it, What are we about? Let's... Oh, yeah, and what's his name? Okay, it's by two people. Avery Milani and Eleazar Levine, or Levin. Let's start with the introduction here. Preface being that in the last um, 10, years, um, there's been a lot more leftist activity slash, you know, leftist existing online. Just a lot more leftists Finding each other, knowing that we exist, not really being able to work with each other that well. In the United States today, there exists a political trend which describes itself as Marxist-Leninist. This trend is organized as a loose constellation orbiting around organizations like one is the Workers' World Party, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, to a lesser extent one called Freedom Road Socialist Org. Members of this trend associate in forums such as Reddit Communism on face, or in Facebook pages with group names like Bro, Are We Communist? Problem. And Karl Marx, Red Reading Room. They're also on Twitter. <laughs> Lots of Twitter. Though containing members of all generations, this contemporary Marxist-Leninist trend has a particular character among millennials, including those in their early 30s, late 20s, radicalized during protests against the Iraq War or an Occupy. And young members radicalized during Black Lives Matter, or by the election of Trump. The authors count themselves, among many others, who politically came of age within this trend. This trend is united in support of, quote-unquote, actual existing socialism, historically, and a continued centrality of the five heads of of ML, which is Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. They stress the importance of anti-imperialism to revolutionary practice in the belly of the beast, America. America and additionally support other national liberation struggles historically and today, as well as support for national bourgeois governments, which are targeted by U.S. imperialism. This includes Iran and Syria. So you get a kind of, like, attitude of, like, they defend Assad. These monsters are impossible to deal with. This trend upholds Stalin against Trotsky, views Khrushchev as a revisionist and supports the USSR's interventions in 56 and 68. That's why they are called tankies, because these interventions were military ones. Funny, though, we could call war hawks in America tankies also, because they support sending tanks into Libya, Iraq, Iran, anywhere, really. Hmm. Or Blackhawks. Those in the Maoist movement consider this uh, to be a revisionist, too. So they may fight or argue. The Contemporary MLs views itself, this trend, as the continuation of a world movement from the 20th century, including any anti-imperialist struggle of a century more broadly. It it proudly sees its own history as being that of the Russian, Chinese, Cuban revolutions, and in the U.S. with local heroes that include the Black Panther Party, Sada Shakur, Angela Davis, and so on. Although, say they they like Angela Davis, but that's kind of used as a cudgel by liberals who like um you know angela davis says vote for biden (laughs) and so on yeah but you haven't read angela davis we have its study guides feature lots of marx Engels, and lenin to a lesser degree stalin and Mao. its propaganda features for instance thomas shikara fred hampton and fidel now the appeal like why 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 go this way what is wrong with these people right Defending Assad, saying the gas attacks are made up—you know, stuff that Jimmy Dore kind of says sometimes. What is like, what? Well, why go this way? Why go so hard? Why? Why with the the USSR imagery? Is it's all reaction? Like all, uh, like like skinheads. Oh, you know, like skinheads, like neo Nazis being the children of hippies that are hate their parents so much. We believe there are several positive aspects to USMLism that have drawn millennials into its orbit. There must be something there. So what could be there? First, MLism is a revolutionary trend that provides an alternative to the reformist wing of socialist movements led by, right wing, by the right wing of the DSA, uh, Jacobin editors, and the movement around Bernie Sanders. New radicals who were unsatisfied by the prospects of social democracy or Democratic Party itself have found a viable option in Marxist-Leninism, at least as they see it. Which explicitly calls for a more total overthrow of the system. Second, this trend prides itself on organizational discipline, which is kind of this is where I kind of see the um, allure. It is quite opposite of all the activism that has occurred since the New Left in the '60s. You know, since then the New Left has spent the last our you know their lifetime, 50 years. Trying to figure out how to do good politics. And they've done they've accomplished many things, but obviously not to anyone's satisfaction. And so it's like, well, what did they do wrong? What have they not done? Well, what they what the new left didn't do in the 60s was stick by the the Soviet Union. They did not stake a yes in the Cold War. I don't care if I'm not going to be hireable or get a good job or be able to buy a house. I am a socialist. I am an enemy of America, whatever. Accept it, you know, be hated, be controversial, edgy, whatever. You know, this is the real punk really being counterculture, really being, you know, sticking it to the man. It's not just wearing grunge stuff and and listening to hard rock music. True, Opposition is like what the new New left never settled on doing, which was being part of a disciplined organization. They couldn't do it. Anarchists today can't do it. They can just do tactical unity. We want to do more. This aspect attracted a lot of militants to Leninism in the late 60s due to the disarray of loose new left organizations such as the original students for democratic society sds these activists came to realize that structureless and non-hierarchical formations often meant in practice despotism of the unelected or media appointed leaders combined with anti-democratic practices like the refusal of a minority worse individuals who bow to the decisions of the majority similarly post occupy radicals have turned to more disciplined organizational structures after participating in a movement without clearly defined structure or articulated goals. Well, I joined the Greens three years after Occupy? Organizational discipline has also appealed to ex-anarchists from the Seattle 99 tradition, some of whom have adopted these trends, these Marxist trends. Third, MLism is a trend known for its strong stance on national liberation and anti-imperialism. In the U.S. in particular, the early CPUSA, Communist Party, was known for its commitment to black liberation, especially through organizing sharecroppers in Alabama and placing an emphasis on Harry Haywood's Black Belt Thesis, the idea that African Americans constituted an oppressed nation within the U.S. Today, the ML trend participates in popular anti-racist struggles like BLM, as well as other anti imperialist stuff, particularly against U.S. wars in the Middle East. Today's ML groups largely call for this and that, self-determination, For many young militants, especially radicals of color, this focus on self-determination is a breath of fresh air compared to the class reductionism that crops up in other leftist trends in the U.S. Point four. Marxist-Leninists generally hold positive views of the 20th century states, socialist states, as myself, I, you know, I, I skew this way. For those who wish to draw positive lessons from this experience, MLism presents an appealing alternative to the Cold War anti-communism often propagated by layers of reformists, anarchists, and other Trotskyists. We have outlined how Marxist-Leninist trend in the U.S. sees itself today and how it presents itself to the broader left. But as Marxists, so he's coming at it from just, I'm Marxist, not a Marxist-Leninist, we are not content with knowing how things present themselves to be. We seek to understand the real content. To that end, let us explore... Their practices. How do the political convictions of Marxist-Leninists play out in practice? Do they just bug people on Twitter? Let's see. So I'm not going to read everything. But I'm going to back up and simply summarize. uh, Because this is like a small book. So the next part is their practice. And to summarize, uh, He speaks of how a lot of these groups... And I've seen this in action. And by the way, so so I'll back up and say, like, I left Forum in New York City, which is kind of like a closest thing to a leftist convention or conference. And there's all these different groups tabling. And I can never quite understand. Like, they seem to say all the same things, do all the same things, but they're all different groups. Why aren't they one big mega group? They could be a whole 30, 40 people. <laughs> Instead of these little cliques of five or ten. And it really is small differences. He explains that in part five, which is called the sex system, that they all kind of break into these sects over these minute questions of ideological purity and dogma. Now, in practice, he's talking about the groups today. They still do all the same protest culture stuff. They go to protests. But it's just that their goals are like, no, no, we're going to protest to recruit more people. And once we have enough people, then we'll be able to do more. You know, we'll have a party, that, an organization that can challenge power. But how? Organize unions, do all this stuff. And this is where it's like they're kind of carved before the horse when they're reading Lenin. And so he goes through, to summarize another part, what they really do is just protest, join other protests, They act like, you know, and this is kind of what Occupy after the encampments look like. And I got really frustrated with this. And at the moment, personally, I'm not really going to a lot of demonstrations and stuff. I go to support friends and to do it as a social activity more than a political one. Because to me, now that's what it is. Social activity. So he speaks of, like, he was... um from Avery's account of their experience with the Workers' World Party. It is important to note that I was only with the organization for five months, and I was never a full member. Here's their analysis, though. And the particular branch was less organized than others like in Durham, New York City, and Detroit. My experience provides sufficient material to draw conclusions about the weaknesses of Workers' World. All of their work was entirely centered around attending and or organizing street protests. We would show up at whatever demonstration was going on, or sometimes we would hold our own. We would bring our own signs that expressed our own slogans, and on bad days, we would show up with just the usuals, politicized activists. When demonstrations had more mass character, it was usually because of the news caught some attention of large layers of the class, you know, George Floyd and BLM. You know, we we had a protest march with 6,000 people, but that's spontaneous. In those cases, we would hand out as many newspapers as possible with the vague goal of recruiting new members. We consider this approach justified, criticizing other activist groups as weak on anti-racism or imperialism. Or there are opportunists for not organizing a 10-person demonstration in solidarity with Maduro. To be absolutely clear, we did not only protest. We also held sign-making parties, planning meetings, educational panels, and jail support. However, most of this work was supplementary and revolved around our focus on protesting. We would sometimes jump from issue to issue, and we would often focus our time organizing demonstrations with a small handful of particular groups. The only measurable goal was recruiting new members, not organizing the class or winning concrete reforms. It was possible that the other branches were better at avoiding this protest treadmill. I can tell you from experience, they're not. But this is kind of the thing that our American political system kind of does. It really, really, it really pushes you through towards the protest treadmill. In some ways, Occupy was a giant protest treadmill, but it was collecting a lot of people in one place to do to to get on the treadmill. It, it was interesting, and then the, the breakup or the disagreements were really about like we're on a treadmill. Let's get off the treadmill. Well, okay, well, what else are we gonna do? We gotta we' gotta do some squats <laughs> and then you know you know workers work like called a, a May Day you know global strike but it's all symbolic and this is and this isn't just like the Leninist problem. this is a lot of activism. a lot of leftists Some are some are doing this but online you know the protest isn't physical but like they're protesting in in Twitter mobs and stuff recruiting for your side but what is your side? doing except validating your own ecology i guess or whatever so this isn't just a you know marxist leninist thing right this is this is a leftist thing overall he points out that the party for socialization and liberation they have more of a program so they do have something more of a in the realm of strategy a to b but otherwise they still kind of do the same thing his next party explains democratic centralism which is kind of what ml's are about which is it's like um, we debate everything, but then we, when we make a decision, we we act as a unit. And this kind of creates a, like, you know, if the minority loses, the minority loses. Uh, they're going to do what the majority wanted, which when you have a bunch of individualists or you have people, like, want to go their own way or it's like, don't tell me what to do, they don't accept this, and they're, and they're out. Democratic centralism, as its practice, implies more... Uh, than a simple formulation of freedom of discussion, unity of action. Uh, There are no factions allowed. There's a party line that cannot be disagreed with publicly, and lower bodies submit to higher bodies. Now, I spent some time in another section about how, like, you don't disagree publicly if it affects what you're doing, like, in a practical sense. And... Thing is, if you're not really doing any practical projects, then it's probably okay to disagree publicly. But you kind of take this scripture of, like, no, don't disagree publicly no matter what. And then it becomes dogma. And then it becomes insular, and then you just don't criticize unless it's in private, which is not really helpful for an organization. Or it makes, on the outside, it makes the organization look dogmatic and... um. Not welcoming. It's like if you don't like what we're saying as we project and and and, and act on Twitter, then 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 you're not welcome. We we disagree. And it's like no no. But actually, once you're in the org, you can disagree all you want. <laughs> we we actually argue all about everything. So there's a, there's a disconnect. There's that word again. There's a disconnect between these two things. He makes the case that like these guys are actually misunderstanding what Lennon wrote about. Broader point is that like Lenin was writing for his times and applying Marxism in Russia, just as other leaders like Mao, were about you know and, and Fidel Castro, the Castro brothers were about applying Marxism or you know these mindsets to their own situation in their own home country. We kind of need to apply Marxism to America. What do we do? And then so we need our own ideology. And to me, like communalism and Mutual aid projects are kind of fitting the bill right now because, as I've, I've noticed, at least in my area, the MLs are also doing mutual aid. They see it, but now they kind of have the same mindset of we're doing this so we can recruit more members. And then what do we do once we have more members? The general idea is we actually run for office. We haven't run for office. We're not running for office this year because we don't have enough members. But then it becomes kind of a catch-22 of, like, you're always trying to get more members, but you don't recruit more members because you're not doing things that concretely affect people. But that's where the adjustment to, we're going to do mutual aid projects and stop just going to protests. Because that, just protesting, is symbolic. It's play. It's LARPing, whatever. It's not really helping people, even if it's, like, for a cause of, say, passing legislation, putting pressure on politicians... It's tactics and they're real, but doing that alone as an org isn't really help. Organizing a tenants union separately from let, and then you get the union to kind of endorse and fight for legislation. That's where things kind of uh, interconnect. Another point that the writers make about misinterpreting Lenin is the concept that, you know, you use a vanguard party that has this ideological unity, as spoken before, um, that has ideological unity, but actually it was in Lenin's time that, or rather his writing, is that you have this vanguard party or you, you need this ideological unity when you're in power. If you're not in power, it's actually all about tactical unity. And that's actually what He wrote about in what is to be done and in other writings of his. So it seems like a big misinterpretation that of just looking at once they were successful in taking over the Russian government or becoming the Russian government, what were they like, what were they doing, instead of focusing on, well, what were they doing in the 20 years before 1917? What they were doing was tactical unity and base building and coalition building that was completely tactical interesting right but then the and this is where the assumption goes with anarchists like well once we ever do actually reach our goals or overthrow the government these leninists will stab us in the back the same way the bolsheviks did because see once they took government tactical unity was out had to be ideological unity and that meant kicking any non-Bolsheviks out of government and what have you, and purges and all that other completely terrible and ugly stuff. I wonder, and so this is where the advice of dropping Leninism comes in, of, okay, we'll do the tactical unity, keep the Marxism, and not have this idea of ideological unity anymore, whether we, when we take government or not. Yeah, so that's another point. Another section is his advice when we getting out of having all of these sects and sectarianism is to just drop the Leninism, just focus on the Marxism. So his final section is kind of like, okay, what do we do then in response to like, this is how all of these orgs have been acting and they haven't been effective at all. They're still as marginal as ever. Even more marginal in the Green Party, at least when the Green Party, you know, we're we're an org doing tactical unity and we're united enough to run a presidential candidate. And then we get some attention. We did not get attention in 2020, but in 2016 we did. No other socialist org could say they did that. Uh, Get to that level of outreach and attention and like, oh, yeah, leftists exist. So what do we do? He mentions over and over, like uh, an argue that, well, actually, I'll just read it out. This essay is not about debunking the political and historical analysis of USMLs more broadly. Instead, it was it is a contribution towards a critique of this trend in the U.S. And we still we still identify the need for an organization that, to bind various elements of class and individuals together to articulate, you know, better content. But we do not think. The way to do that is to set up a small, highly centralized org bound to a particular brand. More than anything, because we take revolutionary politics seriously, we have no desire to repeat the failures of the new communist movement, he talks about that generally, but in waste another generation making the same mistakes. We do not have the answers, and we think the first step to finding them is to admit our ignorance. Tentatively, though, we would argue that base building is the primary task of our current juncture. Historically, Social Democrats and then the Communist movement based their support on the existing base of trade unions. But today, trade unions are a historic weak point. Without a mass base of working-class institutions, we will not have the power or any base to build any party, do anything. This means building working-class infrastructure on all fronts, tenants' unions, worker co-ops, but also institutions of culture, leisure, and art. Sports. We must also engage with popular struggles such as BLM. In other words, build a more worker society, or a proletarian civil society, as he calls it. An infrastructure, dual power building. We believe that a relatively lower level political unity is needed that is practiced in most Marxist sects. We also believe that we cannot necessarily know ahead of time what organizational form will achieve revolution. As several historical examples demonstrate, revolution is not necessarily carried out by a single centralized vanguard. I would argue it's something I must be it in America. It's got to be horizontal. Horizontal is kind of what works. And when we talk of community building, community blank orgs, this radio station, we're trying to lean towards a horizontalist structure. We'll see how things go. The interrelationship between the growth of the party and the revolutionary movement which occurred in Russia was not unique to that country. Other major 20th century revolutions have been made without the leading role of a single classical Leninist party. Cuban Revolution, for example, an essentially military organization, the 26th of July, that's what Fidel and the Castros led in Che, they played a leading role in seizing power, but they did so with a communist party that merged with it. Same with other examples like in Eastern Europe. You know, you already had these worker parties that already existed. Failure of the new communist movement. These possibilities, and this is new left, 60s, 70s. These possibilities must be seriously considered. So let's see, moving on. So he's partial to the Marxist center, which I covered about a year or two ago. They had a big conference, which had, uh, they prioritized a base building and dual power strategy. Build up the leftist party. This informal loose grouping of orgs, which include, among others, Philly Socialists, Communist Labor Party, Red Bloom Communist Collective, an Austis Socialist Group, Kentucky Workers League. Marxist center groups focus on projects such as tenant unions, English language classes, community gardens, community self-defense, that means training, gun ownership, and other base building projects. The Marxist center is perhaps the First new trend in U.S. Marxism since the O.A. financial collapse, other than this ML revival. Another movement that we believe everyone should be learning from is called the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, in particular, Cooperation Jackson. I mentioned them several times before. These organization has built a multi-pronged grassroots movement in Jackson, Mississippi. Their efforts include a solidarity economy, that means founding co-ops and other things, They've successfully ran a mayoral campaign twice. Jackson is a vibrant organization with healthy internal struggle and base-building activities with working people. Like the Marxist Center, they can be considered part of a modern base-building trend. And here's where I'm a little less partial, but he makes the case that he thinks Marxists can work productively in the DSA. While well, the DSA was founded on the principles of Zionism, and Democratic Party lobbyism and to this day maintains this conservative old guard. We believe that the recent influx in membership upon the election of Trump has destabilized the old leadership and given the organization a more massy character. To me, this is a bit old because in the last four years, it's kind of been shown that yeah, the membership has changed very much, but there is still this leadership that still kind of holds the cards and is still directs. DSA either towards endorsing Democrats, running for office as Democrats, or being neutral. You know, in the last election, presidential, a few chapters endorsed Harry Hawkins, a Green candidate, but many chose to be neutral, and now some of their members are running for local office as Democrats, as there is no longer a Green Party line in many states funny how that works you know they don't help us maintain our line because they already believed that the left does not need its own electoral line the organization currently I'll, and i'll i think the next episode will then be like why why is that bad why is why is that wrong without just falling into jimmy door populism Um, The organization currently, and it goes into the facts, you probably already, might know them already, DSA facts. So yeah, DSA entryism. Not Democratic Party entryism, but DSA entryism, which, because DSA chapters, relatively decentralized, not as decentralized as Green Party chapters I'll mention, but they are doing a lot of base building and mutual aid activities, as basically any ML group, anarchist group, does. But there are also caucuses within the DSA. You know, see, the DSA isn't, isn't a party, right? But, the, but there are those offended that want to argue that, like, it should be one. Base building, as it matures, will also come with developing new theory. We believe that rather than simply applying an ideology codified nearly a century ago, we will need to create new Marxist theory based on our situation. While we do not know what this new theory will look like, it will have to account for particular contours of the U.S., like, see, if slavery, for example, genocide, a socialist revolution will never has never been made in a settler, colonial, imperialist, bourgeois democracy like U.S. Uh, it would do as well to take seriously the lack of knowledge, and experience that we have to draw from, while not forgetting the lessons of history. We believe that in order to do this, we must break from Leninist orthodoxy and not be afraid to be heretical in our approaches. And he's writing in 2018. Uh, we are all a period of nascent socialist movements since the 08 financial crisis. We should not be afraid of new ideas and should look forward instead of harping on the 20th century all over again. Without bending in reformism or adventurism, we must feel free to put everything back on the table and come to build strategy and theory through our struggles. That's nice. So end on there. I was eventually going to put that in like a leftist strategy tour, but... um. I think it fits better here now, now I'm thinking about it. So, here's my profound thanks for listening to the show. I'm in the last few seconds, actually. So, this, I'm just going to give the short version. Um, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, Three Left Show, please support. Please give input. Please let me know you're listening. I need a little validation, too. You can also email at Three left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of Independent Community Radio. So support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at GrandArts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our Social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad and keep waving the flags of the three lefts.